This is New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. If you're enjoying this podcast, the best thing that you can do for the show is to tell somebody else about it. Help spread the word and take a moment to rate and review us on your podcasting app. Cellist Jennifer Kletzel is crazy about Beethoven. In fact, when I had a chance to interview her recently on Zoom, behind her was a huge cardboard cutout, a Beethoven looming over her and taking notes. We kind of made a joke about it, but still, Beethoven has been looming over her life for many years, since the time she was eight years old. And recently, she put together a three-CD set called Beethoven, the Conquering Hero. And on it, we hear the complete works for cello and piano by Beethoven. It features Jennifer Kletzel and pianist Robert Koenig. And that's what you're going to hear about this week on New Classical Tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Jennifer, the last time that we talked, I think it was in 2016, when the Cypress Quartet was getting ready to disband after 20 years, and a lot has transpired since then. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've been up to since the Cypress String Quartet uh, parted ways? Yes, well, that was, it was a scary time and an interesting time. Um, you know, you don't expect to have a complete career change at, at a certain point in your life. It's, um, and after 20 wonderful years of doing that, it was also exciting to figure out what would come next. So um, the first thing that happened for me uh, immediately after the quartet disbanded was I got a, a teaching job in Santa Barbara at UC Santa Barbara. And I first was a part-time, you know, lecturer there, but I'm now a full professor uh, there. So I'm, and I'm head of the strings area and head of the performance area as well. So um, I spend a good portion of my time uh, teaching cello and chamber music and attending lots of meetings. Um, and other than that, I think because I hadn't had much time to explore non-string quartet music, um, I began to perform a lot of recitals and concertos and piano trios and, you know, all the repertoire I didn't have time to do in those 20 years. So um, it's been exciting to do that. And then I also, uh, a couple of years ago, I started playing some more string quartets again because I missed that. <laughs> the repertoire is so good for that. But but the majority of my playing has been either as a duo with, with my pianist, Bob Koenig, or, um, or as a concerto soloist since the quartet disbanded. I'm thinking as a teacher you probably have even additional credibility with your students because of your professional performing career. Can you talk a little bit about how that influences what your students learn or um, maybe the repertoire you assign to them or something? So I, you know, I try to choose the repertoire for them based on their own needs, but sometimes that, that intersects with what I happen to be doing. And there's nothing as, you know, it's really fun when I go in and I'm talking to one of my students and they're working on the same piece I'm playing or one of the pieces I've been working on. And we can talk about how to problem solve. And I have experience right away from, you know, from doing that. And I'm saying, oh, I had that same problem. Here's how I solved it. Let's see what will work for you. Um, and so... Uh, that's actually fun to become more like colleagues rather than teacher and student because we're doing it together. Um, and I find that, that that's a lot of fun. 
I'm looking at Beethoven, who is looming behind you as we have this conversation on Zoom. Tell me a little bit about, is that a poster? Is that a 3D (laughs) Beethoven? It is a life-size cardboard cutout of Beethoven that um, I got a number of years ago. And uh, with the quartet, we were doing um, a a project called Beethoven in the City, where we were performing Beethoven in these pop-up concerts all over the city. And so Beethoven was popping up with us. And um, I just decided I wanted to invest in the cutout. And um, then he lives in my practice room. So he watches me practice all the time. Beethoven is always looking over my shoulder, no matter what, even if he's here in cardboard cutout form or not. Beethoven has actually been an important part of your life for a very long time. When you were eight years old, your piano teacher placed Beethoven's Sonata for Piano and Cello Number 2 in G minor on your music stand. And you have since said that that was a very bold thing for your teacher to do. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Well, so in that second sonata, the cello part itself, so it starts with a slow introduction. is a little bit sparse. There's a lot of space between the notes. There's sudden like jabs of energy. Um, And when you're just playing the cello part alone, it doesn't make sense. And especially as an eight-year-old, right? Um, So when I first got to hear that with the piano part, it was amazing to me because then I understood how these parts really fit together. It was one of my earliest chamber music experiences. And you know, I felt enlightened by that. It was like, oh, this is what it's about. Now I understand. Um, So uh, I'm still friends with that teacher. One of these days I should ask her what she was thinking. (laughs) So I don't know how many years ago that was, but you've been living with this piece for a very long time. What do you think about this piece now? How has it evolved in your mind or through your performance? Because it appears on your new uh, three CD recording. Right. Well, it is interesting that that's that was the first one that I you know I'd, since then I've performed all of them and then come back to this one. It is the one sonata that's in a minor key that Beethoven wrote for cello and piano, um, and so I think that it has a little more, um, at least for his early music, it has a little more depth to it. It's 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 darker and yet. Beethoven, one of the greatest things about him is how he plays with contrast and context. So you have this very dark introduction, which then, when he releases you out of that, it feels like the sun has come out. There's something about those contrasts and how he uh, creates an experience for the listener um, that I find just constantly interesting, even, you know, since I've been playing it that many years. And no, I'm not going to say how many that is either. (laughs) So how did Beethoven actually become kind of an obsession for you over the years? Well, I think that, you know, 
early on when I was in youth orchestra and things, of course, we were playing the symphonies and I found them magical as well. And then I began to study all the cello and piano works. Uh, being in the string quartet for 20 years, we Beethoven was a constant. Then we were playing Beethoven almost every week um, with the quartet and recorded all the all the string quartets by Beethoven. Um, I was in a piano trio. We did all of the, the piano trios. I've done the string trios. In fact, anything that involves the cello as a chamber music instrument or even as a solo instrument with the Beethoven triple concerto, has been a part of my life and I find the music always vibrant and surprising even if I know it's coming there's something a little delightful and surprising about it there's such a wide range of emotion uh, to it people you know often think of Beethoven as this stormy moody composer but I think that there's such sweetness and depth and also cleverness the dialogue between the instruments fascinates me so every time I come back to a work of his, I want to learn more about it and dig a little deeper. Um, that to me is a sign of a great composer. So that, that across the board, if I'm working with a living composer or whatever, if there's something that keeps drawing me back in, that's why I want to be doing this. That's what I want to be sharing with people. Your new recording is a three-CD set, and it features the complete works for cello and piano by Beethoven. Why is this considered to be a career milestone for you? Now, I must say that that was not my... I, I did not name it as such, but... Um, well, I think is it a career milestone? <laughs> I guess let's establish that first. It's a big project, I will say that. I think when I when I decided to dive into the project, I wasn't thinking about, you know... We don't, I don't. I don't operate in that way. This is, I'm going to create this career milestone. But I just wanted. I recorded all the quartets, so I wanted to dive into the to the cello and piano works. And I was interested in looking at the journey that Beethoven himself made from his early days to you know to the because the cello sonatas actually span and variations span most of his life. It's he would have been the pianist playing in the early pieces and then up until eighteen fifteen turning into his late period, he's still writing for cello and piano. So I wanted to look at that, you know, sort of from the beginning to the end. And um so I wasn't thinking about the fact that it was such a huge project and I knew it would take a little time. It's nine pieces on this collection. It's almost three hours of music. You can't just do that overnight. <laughs> so um, we, we had to spread out the timing of recording that. And then, of course, we got uh, halted by the COVID you know, pandemic um, because the recording studios were closed. And so everything, this was meant to be a, oh, a celebration of Beethoven 250, like so many people were doing. And I like to think that Beethoven wouldn't mind that it came out at 251. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but I wasn't thinking milestone. I was just thinking I'm ready to do this. It's, I've spent a lot of time with this music, and, um, but it's a big collection, I will say that. One of the things you decided to do, as you just alluded to, with this collection was to put the music in chronological order, which that's not a, necessarily a common thing to do. Why did you decide to do that? Well, and it, it took a while. I had to really think about how I wanted to present it because, um, you know, back in the day when people would record on LP, you had to really think about this, this each side, side A, side B, all, all of that. So I've seen collections released in many different 
ways. Um, but I thought it would be interesting if somebody wanted to. They don't have to. If you are still a CD listener, you can start a disc one and go all the way through. Um, if you stream it, it's again released that way. So you could spend three hours sort of watching that development or skip to your favorite one. Um, what's interesting about doing it this way is that the last three sonatas, which are really our, our meatiest works or our, you know, people perform those probably more often than the others. That's disc three right there. Sonatas three, four, and five. Um, so Beethoven's middle period and late period are there. But I love looking at that first disc, uh, or the first, yeah, the first disc on there is all from 1796. So it was young Beethoven, <laughs> Beethoven at 26, performing the piano part himself. So I always think when I'm listening to that, he would have been the person playing along with the, the great, du, you know, the Duport brothers at the Prussian court. He heard these great cellists, so it's what inspired him to write. Um, but that and the fact that he wanted to perform at the court and get paid a little. But uh, that whole disc is that early period, so that's fun. And we get to hear the evolution of Beethoven. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, what are we hearing in that evolution to listen for, perhaps? So it does become a more, so at the beginning, um, there's a lot of piano. It's, it's very piano heavy, I would say. And the cello is more, um, it's not an accompanying instrument necessarily, but there are moments. So for example, in the variations, the first set of variations that opens a set, um, the Conquering Hero variations, the um, cello does not get the main theme until the 10th variation. And even then, when the cello finally gets to play the main theme, the piano is uh, in canon in a low part and the, and the piano playing the same theme, uh, you know, a measure later. And so um, it always feels like, you know, it's not quite, you're not quite able to stand on your own. Um, but as we go through the period of time, you see how they become more equal. So Opus 69, the A major sonata, is considered by many to be the first true partnership of cello and piano. It starts with a long uh, cello solo. And I think that that's sort of like Beethoven saying, yep, here it is. The cello is going to carry this and then the piano will come in later with that. Um, So that's a much more equal partnership there. And then as you go on, that happens. The later two sonatas have more of Beethoven's late period um, hallmarks in there. Sudden changes uh, without transitions. Uh, They're shorter. They're more kind of terse. Um, There's more surprises, if you will, in there. Um, And also a lot of little bits of fugues, which is another hallmark of Beethoven's later music. This project is titled Beethoven, the Conquering Hero, and you lead off the recording with a set of variations on that theme. Why is Beethoven the Conquering Hero in your mind? So when I was first thinking about this title, people were saying to me, well, that sounds strange. I don't know about that. And I said, well, it's not, we're not like coming to get you kind of conquering hero thing. It's not Beethoven doing that. I think that Beethoven himself, himself, conquered a lot of things, um, a lot of troubles in his life between the losing of his hearing, never finding love. You know, there were, there were many struggles um, for him, and yet he kept writing music, and he kept coming back um, and, and bringing us this cleverness and this beauty. And I think of that, that's a different way of conquering things, right, too. And then the fact that this, um, that I knew that those variations would open the set. And 
Handel, who wrote The Conquering Hero, that, that it's from um, Handel's Oratorio, Judas Maccabeus, um, he was not looking at it as, again as, as we're conquering people. It was more about we've conquered fears. It's about celebration. So the whole line, I think, in that oratorio was sound the trumpets, beat the drums, uh, songs of triumph, uh, bring, bringing, to, you know, bringing songs of triumph to people. So I was thinking of it from that standpoint. set of variations that comes from Mozart's The Magic Flute. My first thought was, why is this so well suited for the cello? It also occurs to me, though, that Beethoven had hoped to study with Mozart. So it makes me wonder, you know, why did he decide to create this set of variations, too? Right. There are actually two, two sets of variations that are based on themes from the Magic Flute. Um, so Handel and Mozart were, were Beethoven's heroes, musical heroes. Um, so, and I think that you're absolutely right. He wanted to, to study with Mozart when he arrived in Vienna. Mozart had just passed away the year before. So, um, but he studied his music intently, I think. And the, that opera and then also the Handel Oratorio were very popular at the time. So that music would have been known by people. So if he were to write a set of variations, and offer it, people would be, oh, I know, I know that theme, I love that theme. It's interesting that by 1801, he stops writing the variations, and then it's all his own music from that point forward. I want to talk about this horn sonata, which is featured on the recording. He wrote it also for cello, so it's horn and piano or cello and piano. Mm-hmm. Talk a little bit about this arrangement and why why you decided to include it. So when I knew I wanted to release this collection, I had to sit down and think about what to include on it because I've seen different takes on this. So there's some people just release the five sonatas for piano and cello and some do the sonatas and variations. And then I started noticing that there were other things on people's collections. So I began to take a closer look because they had not come across my music stand before. Um, There are two pieces I decided to leave out. Uh, One was there's a version of the Kreutzer Sonata, the great violin sonata for that that Czerny, a Beethoven student, arranged. Um, But it's in a different key and uh, Bob, my pianist was like, I'm not relearning that massive piece in a different key, and besides which, I think it belongs on violin. And so I said, okay, that's not Beethoven exactly. It is his music, but we're going to put that to the side. And then there's a wonderful arrangement of the of the Opus 3 string trio that was, you know, turned into a cello piano sonata. Again, not by Beethoven. So that I already started drawing the lines there. Now, the horn sonata, he did make the arrangement for, t- when he sent it to his publisher, he included a cello part in in the in the arrangement, so you could buy it for you know it comes with both parts when you buy the the piece, um, and I think that was well. There's a couple reasons he probably did that. One is that not that many people were playing the natural horn, which is what it was written for, and apparently very hard to play. Um, Beethoven wrote it for the greatest horn player of the day, and then I think he thought, well, there are more cellists who might like to play this, and. It, you know, it's it's slightly different. I mean, Beethoven himself arranged that. There are more chords and things. You can't do that on horn. But I think it's a really delightful piece. So it made sense to me to include it.
It makes me wonder what Beethoven's relationship was to the cello. I mean, why was he writing this music? Well, I think he was inspired. There are two main cellists that he wrote for, and I think it was their playing specifically that he, you know, he was inspired by. So, or well, three main cellists because it was a set of brothers that he heard first. And I think he ha- he didn't realize that the cello could sound like that until he heard these two French brothers. They were the cellists to the Prussian court, uh, the Duport brothers. And um, I think he was sort of astounded by how well they played. So he was inspired to write for that. And then as time went on, he was working with um, Anton Kraft. Um, and knew what he could do. So I think he liked something about the sound. What's interesting is we don't have a full-fledged slow movement in all of these uh, sonatas. So there's, in the fifth sonata, there's our longest bit of a slow movement, but it doesn't resolve. It goes into the fugue at the end. Um, And I read somewhere that Beethoven thought that the cello could not carry a line as long as a violin could. (laughs) Um, I wonder if he'd think that same thing today. I don't know. (laughs) It's interesting, though. Yeah, that's kind of an odd thing. I mean, because technically the music is executed in a similar fashion. I know. (laughs) And you don't have the instrument right against your ear, (laughs) blasting your ear. (laughs) Oh, interesting. Your partner, Robert Koenig, is playing a 19th century concert grand. It's a unique instrument. Tell me about this instrument and why is it significant that he's playing this on this recording as you record the music of Beethoven. So as you can imagine, when you go in to record anywhere, you know, a pianist needs to find, needs to have a great piano there to work with. And so we did this recording at Skywalker Sound up in Marin County, which is where I've um, done most of my recording in, in the last 20 years. Um, and they have, they have a few pianos there that we were allowed to try and figure out if we liked. This piano was so beautiful and pure sounding. It suited Bob's touch very well. I thought it suited the music. There's a great clarity to it. So, um, and then we knew it could be there for the amount of time that we wanted to record because often pianos are shifting around, right? If they're, (laughs) so um, it just, everything, worked out nicely and we we also were allowed it's a blutner with a so the u the u has an umlaut in it and my last name kletzel and bob's last name koenig both were former umlauts so we were like felt like this all made sense to us (laughs) oh wonderful when you and robert koenig sat down for the first time to play beethoven together you chose the cello sonata number three in a major why well, it is the, um, I don't know how to put this exactly, but it's kind of like the proving ground for cellists. That's the one sonata that's, con- you know, it's considered the greatest of them. And I think that we wanted to test out how we, we work together. And so let's start with the one that is the first true duo sonata. Um, it's a piece that we both love very much. So, um, and something clicked immediately from that, from that moment. It was one of the very first things we played, so. Um, and we continue to. <laughs> so I love, love performing that work. When you were in college, Jennifer, you wrote a paper about the last two sonatas and how they were a turning point for Beethoven. 
Can you share a little bit about what you learned? Mm-hmm. So at that point, I, you know, of course, my obsession was clear early on, but throughout my time in college, um, I, you know, was continuing to stay obsessed. One of my, one of my master's recitals was all five Beethoven cello and piano sonatas. On it was a very long program, two intermissions, um, and uh, my little catchphrase of Beethoven couldn't hear them, but you can. I have, I still have one of those posters. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that here on air, but um, <laughs> I still have that. Uh, I was trying to get people to come and hear them, uh, but it, that was an interesting journey there. But yeah, a little earlier on, I had been studying what made Beethoven's late, uh, later music. Of course, he didn't know that he was, it was his late period. It's what we call it now, right? Um, but looking at 1815 when he was writing those, so there was a break from 1808, the Opus 69 A major, and then he came back to the cello and piano format in 1815 with that set of two sonatas. And they just, um, there are so many things about them that just seem more like his late works, like the string quartets that he turned to later as well. Um, whether it's, uh, I mentioned before about the fugues. There's a there's a full-blown fugue at the end of the fifth sonata. It's, it's what ends this whole collection is a fugue. Of course, that harkens back to Handel and his love of, of Handel. Um, and there's a in, there's a big canon going on in the fourth sonata. And those were things that Beethoven explored a lot in his later later years. Um, also, the way that he transitions, or he doesn't transition, he just goes, he's in a certain key, and then he's like, I'm moving to this key. here's the next key and so he's exploring what that does to uh you know to the feeling of the music i think this keeping the audience always at the edge of their seat what's going to happen next um those are things that he's really gotten good at at this point in his late period there's also a lot more trills there's something i uh, once talked to a beethoven scholar about um the, the theory possibly is that Beethoven, with his hearing being, you know, losing his hearing but not quite being going, that he often was hearing a sort of trill, a high trill sound, and that he often just put it in his music. Well, you'll find trills, like in the piano part especially, in the last two sonatas. So those are things that I was beginning to explore um, already in college. I read this in an interview that you did. You and Robert have a unique partnership, and it's one that your mother even commented on when she heard you perform. And your mother's an opera singer, so she has a unique perspective. Can you talk a little bit about her reaction, and what did that mean to you when she responded in that way? Well, it was, so this was a performance, and this was just a few months after the quartet uh, disbanded. Um, I was, gave a performance for um, San Francisco performances, and it was a salon concert, and I asked Bob to perform with me uh, for that. Sonata was one of one of the pieces, the Beethoven G minor, and there was Rachmaninoff and a couple other pieces on there. And uh, my mother traveled to hear the concert, and I, her reaction afterwards, she just said, I, "I've never 
It, you, you two, it was like you were one voice working together. And it was our, one of our first performances together. So that was very meaningful to me that, that somebody who I trusted and, and you know, liked their musical sensibility could hear that already, because I felt that. But knowing that the audience uh, felt that as well was important to me. Jennifer, what did you learn about yourself as you were putting this project together? You know, recording is really different from performance. And I think um, it's tougher in a way. First of all, you don't have that immediate uh, feedback from an audience. I love performing. Live performance is so special when you have the energy between an audience and a performer. Um, you're left alone with your own thoughts when you're in the recording studio, knowing that this is going to go out in the world. And I've always had to remind myself that it's a moment in time that's captured in the studio. The minute I leave a recording studio, I have new ideas about the pieces I just recorded. And that can be frustrating, but I also think that's part of life. I mean, um, Beethoven once said, in German, but I'll give you to you in English, something about uh, uh, art demands of us that we never stand still. And I love that idea, and I feel like that's what happens when I'm in the recording studio. I'm, I'm giving my all and giving my best, but then I walk out of there, and I need to find fresh ideas so I'm not just, you know, doing exactly what I had been doing before. So, And that's living, right? Yeah, and it's also why these pieces can be heard time and time and time again, right? And why they have endured. One of the other things I know that is important to you are new commissions, new music. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important to you? So I think it's our responsibility as artists of this time or whatever time we're existing in to champion the, uh, I like to call them the living Beethovens, <laughs> to, find, to find composers who have these same qualities, but who are responding to our time, and then perform them, commission them, record them, and continue this dialogue with the world, right? So that when people look back at this time period, well, what was going on? What was going on in the arts here? And we are very splintered. There's arts, you know, all over the place of all different kinds. Um, people are still writing music for cello and piano, <laughs> a lot of it. Um, so I'm always looking for a fresh new voice that has, and actually I often will, will find that they have some of the same qualities that I love about Beethoven. So there's that cleverness or the dialogue, or there's a brilliance for how they put things together uh, that keeps me interested. So I then I'm able to continue playing it and sharing it with audiences. And how do new works inform what you do with the music of composers like Beethoven? Knowing that the person writing the music is human. <laughs> um, you know, with, with Beethoven, we put him up here, we, we have a cardboard cut out of him. Um, we put him up here on a shelf and it's like, oh, was he, you know, how was he human? He seems godlike. Um, well, when I've watched com or I've worked with a lot of living composers and talking to them about how notation is an imperfect way to write something down. I mean, they're giving us a map to what they want, but it's really hard to express exactly what they want in music and realizing that that's the same thing that was going on in the time, you know, and with the older composers too. Um, also, so much of the emotions that composers are writing about today or the life events around them that influence their composition, that was happening with the older composers too. So it just, it gives me a, a fresh idea of what it would have been like to be around someone like Beethoven.
cellist Jennifer Kletzel talking about her new three-CD set, Beethoven, The Conquering Hero. Thanks to Valerie Kaler, our producer for new classical tracks from American Public Media. I'm Julia Macher. Mm-hmm.